Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the first chapter of the book of Luke. We all have our special memories of uh, Christmas. And for one reason or another, my strongest memories of Christmas are my father's hands. Uh, my uh, father had uh, several fingers that had been broken during his lifetime. And his index finger went north and his middle finger went south. And uh, what I remember about those hands is the way he used to hold his Bible when he would read it to us. He had an old battered Schofield Bible uh, with the edges uh, tattered and torn. And uh, we always had our Christmas on Christmas Eve. And before we would begin to open our presents, he would take out that old Bible, and he would hold it in his hands and uh, hunch forward in, in the way he always did when he, when he read to us, and he would read the Christmas story to us. And uh, when I went back to this uh, passage and began to read it for myself this past week, uh, that was the image that flashed through my, uh, my mind. He uh, would always begin reading with verse 26 of chapter 1. And I would like to begin there. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. You are highly favored. Uh, actually, you have been given a gift. You are gifted. The Lord is with you. Mary was, uh, was greatly troubled at his words. She was confused and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. He has given you a, a gift. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. If you uh, travel through Israel uh, to the north, you will pass through a, 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 a wide uh, plain. It's called the Plain of Esdraelon. That uh, is Israel's uh, historic battlefield. That's the place where the apocalyptic battle of Armageddon will take place, that final clash between the forces of good and evil. And if you look to the north from the valley of Esdraelon, there's a, a chain of mountains 
looks very much like the Boise front, except it's a bit more wooded. And uh, right in front of you, that, that chain is broken by a deep uh, valley. And if you walk on into that valley about an hour's journey, you'll come to the city of Nazareth. It's a very large uh, city today, about 25,000 people. But uh, in those days, of course, it was much uh, smaller. Though it was uh, a fairly large uh, city, even by ancient standards at that time, because it was located on a, on a thoroughfare. Luke, for the sake of his Gentile readers, explains that Nazareth was found in Galilee, but most Jews would know where Nazareth was because it was a very important place. It was a stopping point, a kind of watering hole for uh, for visitors that were traveling up and down what was called the, the Via Maris, the way to the road, the, uh, the way to the sea. The major road through the ancient world then uh, began in Damascus and uh, then moved through uh, through the land of Israel to Akko, which was a seaport on the Mediterranean. And uh, every day, all day, there were caravans traveling up and down that road, and Nazareth was always the place to stop. There were inns and restaurants and bars and brothels there. It was a tough little town. That's why Nathaniel said when Philip pointed out to him that Jesus had come from from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It wasn't that Nazareth was very small. It was that it was very, very wicked. That was the city that uh, Jesus was raised in. As you know, he was called the Nazarene, which was really a pejorative term because he came from that place. His, uh, his mother Mary and Joseph probably grew up there in, in Nazareth. And we're told that it was in that, in that place that uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary. She was all by herself in her home. Now, we don't know much about Mary. We don't know what she'd look like. Uh, she's often portrayed as uh, very beautiful, but she may not have been pretty at all. She may have been as homely as all get out. She was probably about 13 or 14 years of age because uh, women married very early back then. As soon as they were capable of, of conception and raising children, they usually were married. Traditionally, we're, uh, we're told that uh, Joseph was very much uh, older, a lot older than, than Mary, but uh, we simply don't know. We don't know anything about the family. We don't know anything about her parents. It's interesting to me that she did not turn to her mother or her father when the announcement was made, she went down to Elizabeth, her kinswoman, to talk to her. I don't know why. Perhaps she was an orphan. We know she had a sister. Her name was Salome, who was the wife of Zebedee, who was the father of James and John, which would make James and John Jesus' cousins, Mary's nephews. Uh, we don't know anything about her background, except she was, uh, she was a devout young Jewess. She knew the scriptures extremely well, and her magnificent, uh, in the following uh, paragraph, she uh, brings together a num- number of very obscure Old Testament scriptures that she had, uh, she had memorized. She was, she was well-versed in, uh, in the scriptures. We're told that uh, she was a virgin. The term means exactly what it means today. She had had no sexual experience at all, but she was betrothed to Joseph. 
A betrothal then is very similar to our engagement, except it was much more binding. It can only be broken through a divorce. And uh, it was usually uh, usually uh, formed in a in a informal way. Family would gather in a home, and and uh, Joseph would bring a portion of his dowry and would present that to the family, and they would pledge their troth to to one another, and a benediction would be said, and that was that was the sum and substance of a betrothal. But they then were engaged, and though they didn't live together, they were considered to be. Uh, as good as, as married. So Mary is described as betrothed to Joseph, but she was still still a virgin. That would be the custom of that day. Joseph, we know, was a carpenter, which was a noble profession then as, as now. While they were probably not poverty-stricken, they, they weren't uh, very, well, uh, very well off. If you go to Nazareth today, they'll show you uh, the place where Joseph's carpenter shop uh, was uh, traditionally considered to be uh, to, uh, to have stood, but we really don't know much much about the family. But what we do know is on that special day, Mary was uh, doing something. Maybe she was in the kitchen, kneading uh, dough or grinding corn, engaged in whatever business she had for that uh, that day. And the angel Gabriel appeared. Gabriel is that special messenger of God who keeps showing up at, at very uh, special times in Israel's history. He's the angel that appeared to Daniel on two occasions. and His, his message always has to do with messianic expectations. He was the angel that appeared uh, to Zechariah between the uh, menorah and the uh, altar of incense in, in the temple while Zechariah was going about his priestly uh, functions and and now he appears in, uh, in Mary's kitchen. And he says to her, uh, greeting. That's uh, just our greeting. Hello. He says, you've been given a gift. The Lord is with you. And we're told that uh, Mary was terribly confused by that statement. Because in the Old Testament, whenever an angel or, or anyone else said to someone, God is with you, that was the preamble to some great call, some task that they, that they had to, to carry out. It was, that was said to Gideon, for example, when he was asked to, to free his, his people from the Midianites. So Mary must have immediately thought, what, what is this great task that God has uh, for me? We're not told that she was necessarily frightened by the appearance of the angel. I don't know why she wouldn't have been. Angels hadn't appeared to anyone for hundreds of years, but and I'm certain, certain that she was startled by, by Gabriel's uh, appearance. These were great, uh, majestic uh, uh, beings. But what really confused her was uh, his announcement, I, I have, a, have a great job for you. I have a wonderful call. And uh, Mary began to wonder what that uh, must be. But in fact, the angel had already told her what, he was, what God wanted. He he simply had a gift for her. He wanted her to receive this very special gift. And now the angel spells out what that uh, gift will be. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. God has in store for you a wonderful gift. You will be with child. Literally, you will conceive and give birth to a son. 
Now that would uh, immediately bring to, to Mary's mind the, uh, the prediction that Isaiah the prophet made to Ahaz the king. Ahaz was told that his wife would conceive, a young woman will conceive and bring forth a son, and that son was Hezekiah, who later came to the throne. But embedded in that simple promise was also a prediction. It was ambiguous enough that uh, there was something yet to be fulfilled. It wasn't fully fulfilled in Ahaz's day, and, and Matthew, in, in his gospel, picks up that saying of of Isaiah's, and he uh, he applies it directly to Mary, she is the virgin who would conceive and, and bring forth a child. And, and she must have begun to wonder at that point what this gift was that the angel, that, that God had uh, for her. And the angel goes on to say that uh, when this uh, son has been born, you're to give him the name Jesus. That's just the name Joshua. Jesus is the Greek form of, of the Old Testament Hebrew name of Israel's great general, Joshua. That would evoke in her mind memories of Joshua's 25-year campaign in, in Canaan. And, and he was the leader who, who drove the, the Canaanites out and gave Israel that possession that they, that they now enjoyed. And uh, the rabbis had said that, that there are five people whose names will be given, uh, were given in advance. Isaac and Ishmael and Sol- Solomon and Josiah and the Messiah. And so there, there was uh, in, in Mary's mind this idea that uh, the Messiah would be named before he was born. And I think things began to fall into place for Mary at about this this point, she began to understand something of the nature of, of the gift. She would conceive and she would bear a son, and that would, that would remind her of Isaiah's promise. And then this statement that he would bear the name Jesus, Joshua, salvation, Yahweh is salvation, literally. Things would, would begin to, to fall into place uh, for her. And then the angel goes on, he... He will be great, he says. A lot of people are, are called great in history. Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Muhammad Ali. But uh, this one would be incomparably great. And actually, this is not the fulfillment of a prediction. Or this is not a prediction. This is the fulfillment of a prediction. Because uh, in Micah, when... Uh, when Micah, the prophet, back in Isaiah's day, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he pointed out that he would be born in this little tiny place. But he will be great, he said. And she would remember that, uh, that prediction. And now it's, the notion is forming in her mind that, that the angel is talking about her Messiah. He'll be great. And he'll be called the Son of, of the Most High. This expression, most high, is the word that's used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament for that, that word for God that you may be familiar with, El Elyon, the highest God, God the highest. And uh, she would realize that this one is, is the Son of God. It's a name that was given to the kings in the Old Testament in a loose and formal sort of way, never taken seriously, though the 
kings of the Orient were often thought of themselves as, as God. The kings of Israel never took that seriously. In Psalm 45, there is a song of praise to the king who is to come. And the psalmist says, Your throne, O God, talking to the, the, the king who was on the throne at the present time, Your throne, O God, will be forever and ever. And here the Old Testament breaks out of its its banks, and you begin to see that the that the king, when he's referred to as the son of God, in a in this informal sense, will that place will someday be taken by someone who can legitimately be called the the son of God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and Mary, of course, was one of the descendants of David, as was Joseph. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. And all of a sudden, it it all uh, made sense to her. She realized what the angel was saying, that she was going to give birth to her Messiah. A thousand years before, God had, had spoken to the prophet Nathan. Nathan went to David, and he said, David, I know you want to build a house for God, but he doesn't want you to build a house for him. He wants to build a house for you. See, that's the way God is. He, he's underwhelmed by our best efforts. He doesn't want us to do anything for him. He just wants to do something for us. He wants to, David says, he says to David, I want to build you a house. Now, he's not talking about a house of brick and mortar. He's playing on the word for house. He has in mind a dynasty. And he says to David, one of these days, one of your sons will sit on your throne, and he will sit on that throne forever. And David, in response, said that, that I should be part of the charter of mankind. And the translations treat this in various ways, but, but literally the text says that I should be part of the law of the man. And what David was thinking about was the promise that was given to Eve in the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned and the whole race fell. God promised that that her seed, one of her descendants, would one day set things right. And that promise was reaffirmed to Noah, one of his sons, Shem. One of his uh, descendants would would be the, the one who would save the world. And the promise was... Uh, stated again to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah and then finally to David. That was the law of the man, the law concerning the man who was the seed of the woman, some, someone who would come someday and, and he would straighten up this mess that we made out of the world and he would, he would bring salvation and he would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And, and Mary then realized what was happening, this wonderful gift that that was given to her was the, the opportunity to bear in her body the life of God and to bring into the world the Savior of mankind. That was her task. She was thinking of some wondrous thing she had to do, but see, what God was saying is, I have something I want to do for you. She recognized that uh, not only was this one the Savior of the whole world, but he was her Savior as well. In her Magnificat, she refers to him as, as her redemption, her Savior. She needed salvation, just as everyone else did in the world. Now, 
the question rose in her mind, how, how can this be? This wasn't the answer of unbelief. It was simply a query. She didn't, she didn't understand how it could happen that uh, she could bear this child because uh, she was yet a virgin. Now, I don't know what the, the angel had gone on to say to her. Apparently, he said more than we have in Luke's, uh, Luke's shorthand account here. But uh, she, she knew that this would happen before she was actually married to Joseph because that's what triggered in her mind this question, how can this be? The angel answered that the Holy Spirit will settle down upon you, is, is the word. And the power of the Most High will fall on you like a shadow. First the fact and then the figure. The Holy Spirit, he says, will descend upon you, settle down upon you, and it's like uh, the Most High casting his shadow upon you, and and so the Holy One to be born will be called the, the Son of God. It's this wonderful explanation of what we call the the virgin birth, although more Correctly, it ought to be called the virgin conception. There was really nothing unusual about the birth, except she was still a virgin at the time of the birth. The birth was very normal. It's the conception that was unusual. And I'm sure Luke, being a physician, wanted more information. But but all the Holy Spirit said to Mary and all that Mary could say to Luke, Luke was probably interviewing Mary. She was alive at the time Luke was... uh, gathering his facts for this, uh, for this uh, gospel. And all Mary could tell him was what, what the angel had told her. I don't understand the process. Here's this, this, this wonderful description of, of God settling down upon her and leaving behind his, his life in the form of a seed. It's what, it's what Paul describes in Timothy as, as a great mystery. He says, great is our mystery. God was manifest in the flesh. He he was born in the flesh. This is what we call the incarnation. God became a human being. And uh, Jesus in himself combined those two natures perfectly. He he never gave up his deity. He He was always divine. He laid aside the independent use of that deity, but he never ceased to be God. And yet he was at the same time fully human. Now, when when the the myths tell stories like this, they always come up with some grotesque example like Janus, the two-faced God, or something else. But what you see in Jesus is, is a perfect human being who had all of the emotions, all of the drives, all of the fears, all of the yearnings, all of the longings, all of the strengths, all of the weaknesses apart from sin that we experience as human beings, and yet he was fully God. And we say with Mary, how in the world can that be? And uh, the explanation that comes is not clinical or, or, or medical. It's just that God's shadow fell upon her in some amazing way, some mysterious, miraculous way. The life of God was left behind in the form of a, of an, of a growing uh, embryo that developed into into uh, child in, in, into full term and then was born and grew as a child and and then as a man growing to uh, to maturity and uh, Mary has given two aids to her uh, not her unbelief but her confusion it says you you should you should talk to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, your relative, is 
has conceived a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, where nothing is impossible with God. That's the first uh, help Elizabeth herself, though she was already past the age of childbearing, she's conceived and, and born a child. For with God nothing is impossible. That's a statement that occurs numerous times in the Old Testament. It's first uh, found in the book of Genesis where Sarah was wondering how she could have a child in her old age. And, and God said, with, with God there's nothing impossible. And then later, uh, Jeremiah was told to go buy a piece of land. And the thing that was unusual about that is that the city of Jerusalem was under siege. And there was no, from a human standpoint, there, there was no possibility that he could ever take possession of that, of that piece of land. And yet God had promised that someday he was going to restore Jerusalem to his people. And as a sign of that promise, Jeremiah was told to buy a piece of of land, because with God nothing is impossible. And later, Zechariah was was told that the streets of Jerusalem will be filled with children. This was during the period of uh, of the exile, when the when Israel was yearning to get back into the land, and Jerusalem lay in ruins, and the temple was just a blackened shell. God says, one of the, one of these days, the streets of Jerusalem are going to be filled with little children, because nothing is impossible with God. See. God doesn't explain how he's going to do this. He just says, I'll, I'll manage it. I can take care of it. Nothing is impossible with me. This was God's gift to Mary. And Mary said in response, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That was Mary's gift to God. Christmas is about an exchange of gifts, and this story is about a, the ultimate exchange of gifts, that what God wanted to do for Mary is to give her the gift of the life of God within her, within her body. And she just made her body available to him to do with as, as he saw fit. And as I was thinking about this story this past week, it occurred to me that this is the story of our lives. I'd never thought of it quite, quite this way, but... It occurred to me that uh, I wasn't the first to, to realize that. Philip Brooks, in his, his book, uh, in his uh, 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 Christmas Carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, puts it like this. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars, together proclaim that holy birth. And praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. That's Mary's story. Now here's ours. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Corey Ten Boom said, if Jesus were born a thousand times in Bethlehem and not in me, 
I would still be lost. That, that messenger just keeps coming to us day after day. It may have come to you uh, initially in the form of uh, something you heard on the radio or some book you read or some preacher you heard, some church service you attended, or it may just be that quiet voice, God speaking to you and, and saying, I have a wonderful gift for you. I have the gift of eternal life that I want to give you. As Paul puts it, the wages of sin, the wages of rejecting the gift, is death. It's eternal death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As John puts it in his gospel, he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to be called and to call themselves the Son of God. You see, what... What God wants to do is to give you a wonderful gift. It's the gift of his life resident in us. He plants that seed, as John puts it, the seed of God in our flesh. And then he begins to grow there. Paul himself talks about uh, coming to the Corinthians and, and ministering to them and helping them grow until Christ is formed within them. See, in that picture of... Of, of the life of God being implanted in us and then growing into, into full maturity. It's how you become a Christian. It's how you become a, a member of God's family. You just receive that gift. You don't have to do anything. There, there were those Jews that came to Jesus. I've mentioned this, uh, this question before. They said, what, what shall we do to work the works of God? That, that's a good question. How can we get, get ourselves aligned with God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. It's all you have to do. Like Mary, you have to say, be it unto me according to your word. And you receive the life of God. And that's also the way we grow. You don't grow by striving, trying hard. There's a thing I, I think of as folk Christianity, this idea that, yes, we, we become a Christian by faith, we get into God's family, we receive the life of God by faith, but then we have to work real hard to, to make it work. There are things we have to do, there are activities we have to be engaged in before we can ever begin to grow, and, and yes, there are, there are things to do, but you see, again, this thing we call sanctification, this growth and grace, is also a gift of God. As Paul puts it, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. How do you walk with him? By faith. How do you change? By faith. How do you become more and more like our Lord Jesus? It's a gift. It's not something we do. Oh, we have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We have to want it with all of our hearts. But the doing of it is, is God's task. Uh, last year, I tried to uh, put this together in the form of, uh, of a column. Let, let me read it to you. As Mammy Yoakum says, goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. Some goodness isn't nice at all. Some folks try too hard. 
For them, goodness is serious business, grim and exacting. They're always laying the law on themselves, trying to be very proper, striving to get the precise image. But their efforts only make things worse, stirring up evil and endowing it with more power. In the end, those who work at being virtuous only become hard and hypocritical. They're not much fun to be around. On the other hand, there's something winsome and elegant about a goodness that comes straight from God. It makes people easier to get along with, easier to work with and live with, more gentle. Their goodness is like old wine, mellow and fragrant. That kind of goodness is God's doing. As Augustine said, there's no true virtue without a miracle. There can be no true goodness unless God works his magic on us. He is the one force in the world by which evil is restrained and good is fostered. There's only one who is good, said Jesus. Whatever conformity to good we achieve is the fruit of his influence. Authentic goodness is nurtured in secret. It's the product of fellowship with God. As we draw near to him day by day, walking with him, talking to him, listening to his words, he begins to rub off on us. Quietly and inobtrusively, his gentle influence softens our wills, making us thirsty for righteousness, inclining us to do his pleasure restraining our passions, keeping us from evil, making us ashamed of evil, giving us the courage to choose what is good. In his quiet love, he takes all that's unworthy in us and gradually turns it into something beautiful for him. Waiting is part of that process. Change is neither swift nor painless, but sometimes subject to agonizing delay. Our personalities resist change, Flawed as we are by heredity and environment and our own indulgence. We may struggle for a while with disagreeable temperaments or controlling habits, yet we can be assured that our conversion is going on every day. We are in recovery, being saved, as Paul puts it, gradually being delivered from sin. I must say for myself that to the extent that I've made any progress at all, it's not been by quantum leaps, but by very small steps, sometimes forward and sometimes back. It's been more of a creeping thing, better seen in retrospect than prospect. The path has seemed chaotic and haphazard, but I know God knows what he's doing. I have David's confidence. He is leading me down paths of righteousness. Every day he leads me down the path to the place he wants me to be. I don't always follow him, and I don't expect to, for no, no such instance is found in the world, as John Calvin said. I'm incapable of consistency, but he is wonderfully persistent. Though we are faithless, Paul said, he abides faithful. He will never give up on us or go away until he has seen his image reflected in us. What he is making of us is not yet done. We are still being formed. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And that's good enough for me. So I just uh, want you to think about this this annunciation to Mary today and, and realize that there are two things to draw from this passage. Number one, God has a wonderful gift for you. It's the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He wants to come to you and implant that life in you. 
If you've never opened your hearts to him, this is a wonderful time to do so during this Christmas season. Let him come and abide with you. Just ask him in. Receive him into your heart and he'll he'll come in to take up residence and he'll begin to grow in you and increasingly manifest his, his presence within you. Our gift is just to say, be it unto me according to your word. Open your heart and invite him in. Let's pray. I'd like to give you an opportunity this morning to pray that prayer. If God's messenger has been speaking to you, if he's been saying to you, I have this wonderful gift for you, this is the time for you to open your heart to him. If you don't do so, there's, there seems to be a, a sort of hardening that sets in and then a, it becomes much more difficult to respond. But if your heart is sensitive this morning and you hear that voice, would you invite him to come in? Just say to him in the words of Mary, be it unto me according to your word. And the dear Christ will enter in. Father, you came in flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld your glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that apart from that gift, there is no grace, there is no truth. We will go on living graceless lives, deceived by by the lies all around us in our culture, believing that we will somehow find ourselves in something other than that gift that you have for us. We thank you for your coming, your willingness to humiliate yourself and humble yourself to dwell in human flesh, to dwell not only in that that perfect body that you inhabited, during the days of your flesh, but to inhabit these imperfect bodies of ours, flawed, fallen as they are, to fill them and flood them with your glory and to manifest through them the grace of your indwelling life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.